views I've ever seen. But to get there, it took work. My calves burned really bad. <laughs> and it took a long time. And so it's sort of the same thing with Bible study. We don't just come to the text and we're like, oh, got it. Right? We're coming to the text. The calves are going to burn. Your mind might burn a little bit. But we're going to pull beautiful texts out of the truths out of the text. And we're going to see the beautiful things that God's created us created for us to see, and we're going to enjoy them together, okay? We're going to enjoy the view of 1 Kings 7 together. So 1 Kings 7, if I could give it to you in a sentence, it's about the glory and the beauty of the Lord shown through his strength, his cleansing, and his son, okay? So it's an account of the temple, and the, the main point is it's the glory and the beauty of the Lord, glory and beauty, shown through his strength, his cleansing, and his son. And the chapter opens with a little interlude on the building of Solomon's house, okay? So JT preached last week, 1 Kings 6, on the actual construction of the temple. Then there's a 12-verse little break, see, like a commercial break, right? It's like, all right, Solomon built his house, and he built a house for his wife, Pharaoh's daughter. We have this break, and then that's 12 verses. Then we come to the next 39 verses, which is on the temple. So we know where we need to go now, to the 39 verses, wherever there's more content. We're going to see what's in this 39 verses. It's God's interior design of his house, basically. Right? They're, they're meant to, when we look at interior design, it's meant to say something about the person living there. If I were to go into your room, I would see maybe maybe trophies, or maybe your walls are painted your favorite color. Maybe not. Or maybe you have uh, pictures of your family or friends in there. And by walking into your room, I could tell a lot about them probably. It's the same case here. So when we walk into God's house, which we're getting to do in this chapter, we're going to see a lot about God. We're going to see how God reveals himself to us. And so the temple here, again, it's meant to show God's glory and his beauty through the items within it. And if you read this text, we're not going to read the whole text because that would take me 30 minutes and then we'd be done here. But if you read the whole text, it's full of gold and flowers, magnificent architecture, and just so much beauty. It's hard to miss. And so for us, it's a fact. It's a fact that beauty and glory naturally attract us. We're naturally moved towards those things. The problem is, because of our fallen nature, we're often attracted to the wrong beauties. And we're attracted to the wrong glories. We were meant to chase God's glory, and we end up chasing fake glories. We were meant to chase God's beauty, and we, meant to, and we end up chasing false beauties. We're beauty chasers and glory seekers, but it always ends up badly. And so as we're, as we're looking at the beauty and the glory of the Lord, ask yourself questions about those things. Like, what kind of beauty are you chasing? Are you, you popping selfies for the gram all the time? Or do you dress so that the opposite sex is attracted to you in a, in a wrong way? Trying to put yourself out there. Are you putting things before your eyes that you know you shouldn't? Are you obsessed with your looks? These are all, this is when beauty gets perverted. There's a problem then. You want, you want beauty, and that's a good thing, but you've been sold a counterfeit if those are the things you're pursuing. Or are you a glory chaser? Is everything about you? Do you always have to have the last word? Do you always have to win the argument? Who do you think the most about? And if the answer to those you know is wrong, then you're chasing glory again which is okay, and that's a good thing, it's what we were meant for, but you're chasing a counterfeit glory. You've been sold a counterfeit. So let's take a look inside the temple to see how it was decorated and to see what God is like. 1 Kings 7, verse 40. 
Here we go. Hiram, who's the man, the man that Solomon hired to build the temple, hired Hiram, also made the pots, the shovels, and the basins, so all these utensils. So Hiram finished all the work that he did for King Solomon on the house of the Lord, the two pillars, the two bowls of the capitals that were on the tops of the pillars, and the two lattice works to cover the two bowls of the capitals that were on the tops of the pillars. So he's built up these two pillars, and he's decorated the top of them so far. And he made 400 pomegranates. That's crazy. This guy must have taken a long time doing this. He made pomegranates uh, for the two lattice works, two rows of pomegranates for each lattice work to cover the two bowls of the capitals that were on the pillars. So he's decorating them. The ten stands and the ten basins on the stands, and the one C, and the twelve oxen underneath the C. Okay, so so far, he's made these two giant pillars, which we'll talk about in a second. And he's decorated them, he's beautified them. And then he makes a C, this, like imagine like a giant bathtub, but like maybe the size of a swimming pool or something. It's a huge bathtub. And they're set on top of these oxen. They're like uh, bronze oxen. Now verse 45. Now the pots and the shovels and the basins and all these vessels in the house of the Lord, which Hiram made for King Solomon, were of burnished bronze. There we go. In the plain of the Jordan, the king cast them in the clay ground between Succoth and Zarephan. And Solomon left all the vessels unweighed. He didn't weigh them because there were so many of them. You would think they made a ton of them, so it would have taken a long time to make them. You would have thought they would just weigh it, but no. The weight of the bronze was not ascertained. So verse 48. So Solomon made all the vessels that were in the house of the Lord, the golden altar, the golden table for the bread of the presence. Remember that one, the golden table. The lampstands of pure gold, five on the south side and five on the north before the inner sanctuary, the flowers, the lamps, and the tongs of gold, the cups, snuffers, basins, and dishes for incense. Remember the dishes for incense as well. And fire pans of pure gold, and the sockets of gold for the doors of the innermost part of the house, the most holy place, and for the doors of the nave of the temple. Verse 51. Here's the completion of the temple. Here we go. Thus all the work that King Solomon did on the house of the Lord was finished. And Solomon <coughs> brought in the things that David his father had dedicated, the silver, the gold, and the vessels, and he stored them in the treasuries of the house of the Lord. That's the word of the Lord. And it is good. You see what I mean by it being a little bit of a trek? But we're going to get to the top and we're going to see a beautiful view, okay? The pillars, first of all, those two pillars that I mentioned to you stand for the strength of the Lord. When we're looking at how does the inside of God's house show us who he is or reveal to us who he is, it shows us the strength of the Lord, these two pillars. So if you were to read the account earlier, it says that the two names of the pillars, you need to actually name them, is Boaz and Jachin. Boaz and Jachin. Strange names for us, but they have a good meaning. So they were, they were tall, and they were wide, and they were meant to be a symbol of strength. They were to show off the strength and the power of God. It's like when a man goes hunting, and he's got like 50 deer heads up on his wall. It's like, yeah, I shot all those. God's showing off his strength and his power in these two um, pillars. In California, they have these massive trees called sequoias. They're huge. They're like thousands of years old. They're hundreds of feet tall, and the trunks are just massive. Like, it'd be like, take like 60 guys to like tree hug that thing. <laughs> it, and it, it's a symbol of strength and power, of God's strength and power in creation. And it would be absolutely daunting even to like take a chainsaw to that thing. But Psalm says that God's 
just God's voice uproots and causes the trees to come crashing down. Those trees. Just a picture of his power right there. And so back to the pillars now, these huge pillars. One is Boaz, which means in him is strength. In Yahweh is strength. In the Lord is strength. And the other is Jachin, which is he or the Lord will establish. Boaz, the Lord is powerful. He can and will do whatever he plans. And Jachin, he will establish. So you have to ask, he will establish what? At least I was curious of that. And if you look at Psalm 2, it says, As for me, says the Lord, I have set or established my king on Zion, my holy hill. Jachin, he will establish. He will establish what? A king. King David? King Solomon? King Joe Biden? <laughs> king Jesus. Amen. You will establish King Jesus. And so the, the thought goes like this. Boaz, Jachin, is God is strength and he will establish King Jesus. As well, if you were to read earlier in the account, the pillars are placed at the entrance or what's called the vestibule of the temple. It's at, at, like the, at the beginning of it where you walk in. And so they, they act as sentries or guards. Imagine that. One on each side and they're acting as sentries in front of the temple at the entrance. They were a reminder to the people that what was unclean or unholy was not to enter the temple. They guarded against entering into the temple because God cannot live with sin and God dwelt in the temple. God doesn't allow sin in his house. It's like those ladies that make you take your shoes off at their door because they don't allow dirt in their house. Right? If God, sin is a serious thing. If God does not allow sin in his house. Can't live with sin. And so the pillars reminded them of that. And it was a terrifying reminder. But to those who had appealed to the mercy of God, and to those who had been washed by God, and to those who had received the forgiveness of God, they were reminded of the strength of God. That's what the pillars were pointing to. And even this morning, God's so good. This morning, as I was preparing for this and reading through this section, I read Psalm 18 in my morning time, which says this. Just listen to the pictures of the strength of the Lord. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. That is, even our greatest enemies, students, our own sin. And so the pillars establish a refuge or a hiding place of the Lord to run from the enemies and to hide in. So where do you go when your enemies are coming? What's your refuge? I've, I've often found refuge in the Lord and it is sweet. You have the strength of these pillars and the strength of the Lord. I've found refuge in the Lord, but there's a, a nasty cycle that we go through sometimes as, as humans, even as believers. And the cycle goes like this. You take refuge in your friends or your crush or your job or your sports or your family. And then the roof will collapse on you every single time. And you'll be beaten down again and again. You'll try to grab for something that's not the Lord and it's not going to work. And so, that is a ruthless cycle. And I do not want that for any of you. And I, I went through that and I found refuge in the Lord. But look at these pillars now. That God's decorated his house with. And see the strength of the Lord. The reason why you're fearful, the reason why you're anxious all the time is because you haven't seen the strength of the Lord. Because you don't see the Boaz and the Jachin of the Lord. That he will establish King Jesus. And that he is strong. 
You're putting something else in God's place and you're coming and worshiping it and you're bowing down to it and that's why you're anxious and that's why you're fearful because nothing is as strong as God. And so in a time of trial, run to the Lord. Take refuge between Boaz and Jachin, the strength of the Lord. And he will prove faithful. God will always hold you fast. So there's, there's the pillars. Now what about this, this big bathtub that I mentioned? This big sea. The sea was made all of bronze, and, and we see it in uh, verse 44 here. If you read it, it says that uh, Hiram made the one sea and the twelve oxen underneath the sea. The sea, then, if the pillars represent strength, the sea represents cleansing. It's a basic rule, as we said before, that God is perfect and clean and pure and holy. And so whatever is not perfect, clean, pure, and holy cannot enter into his presence. Which is all fine and dandy until we take a look at our own hearts and our own lives. Which we realize are not clean, perfect, pure, or holy. And so then we begin to ask, how can, how can I even live in a world where I'm eating God's food and breathing God's air? And that question comes with guilt and it comes with shame. And many of us, if not all of us, have felt that. How, how will I stand before God someday if I am all of these things... If I am not all of these things that he is, and he requires perfect obedience out of me, how am I going to have any hope of entering into eternity with him if I can't even be in his presence in my natural state? And again, some of you have felt this before. Some of you have come tonight feeling this way. There is guilt in this. There is shame in this. Despair, even, for the things you've done, or even the way that you are. And God provides a way of cleansing in 1 Kings 7. And not only in 1 Kings 7, but for the student and Redeemer students in Rockford, Illinois in the 21st century. There's a way of cleansing. That is through the basin. Okay, so this sea of bronze is, like I said, this giant bathtub. Right? And it's made of bronze and throughout, and it's filled with water. It's filled with water, just gallons of water. And throughout all of Scripture, water symbolizes cleansing. Does everyone in here take a bath and shower regularly? I don't know why it doesn't smell worse in here. Guys, uh, this is why we bathe, right? Because water cleanses. That's its natural effect. It cleanses. And in Scripture, it has a spiritual effect of cleansing. More so than just bathing your physical body, water in Scripture represents spiritual cleansing. And so when we look at this water basin, we have to see it through that lens. The water basin was for the cleansing of the people. It was for their cleansing. And so what about us? Well, praise God, we don't have to book tickets and go jump in the Sea of Bronze over in Israel right now. Rather, we run to Jesus, who is the better and the truer Sea of Bronze. Who is our better and our truer cleansing. Listen to these cross-references. Psalm 51.7 says, Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Wash me. Cleanse me. Titus 3.5 He saved us, which means you can be brought into his presence. By the washing of regeneration. By the washing of regeneration. 1 Corinthians 6.11 But you were washed, you're cleansed, you were sanctified, which means you're holy, you're set apart, and you're made able to enter into the temple of the Lord. So when you were washed, you were made able to enter into his temple. And you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so some of you need washing in the sea of bronze. The truer and better one, Jesus. 
And some of you should just remember if you're washing. There's something to rejoice in when you can just, when Jesus just cleanses you. Is saving from your sin all these accounts and debts that you've accrued up against, accrued against God as simple as being washed? Yes. And so, as you come here tonight, and it is a fact that some of you do feel dirty and filthy, which is a proper response to sin. And particularly if you're without Christ, of course you feel dirty and filthy because you've been washing for so long in your own things that you've been trying to do on your own, your own filth and, and excrement. You've been washing in filthiness for so long. Stop trying to clean yourself up and come to the sea of bronze and be washed with pure and clean water. Come bathe in this water. Come to Jesus Christ. All that you do is come and he will do the washing. And so that's the basin and then under the basin there's a stand. It's like these decorative bowls. It's really, it's really cool. The bowls in the temple were, were uh, symbols of sacrifice. So in a temple context, the bowls represent sacrifice. And so the significance of the bowls under the water is to show by what means we can be washed. Because God would be an unjust God if he took sinners and he was just like, sprinkle water on them and he's like, all right, we're good. But rather, he takes the sin of the sinner and he places it on a sacrifice. And he puts the, the, both the sin and the punishment on them. And so in the picture of the bulls, what they would do in the temple is they would place the sins of the people onto the bull and then they would sacrifice the bull so that the bull experienced the punishment that the people should have experienced. And so the sin is transferred to the sacrifice. Jesus, again, you can find this in Hebrews. I'll read it in a second. Jesus is also a better sacrifice than any bull. Not only is Jesus a better cleansing for you, but he is a better washing with blood for you. Hebrews 9, 12 through 14, I'll just read it for you. It says, he, Jesus, entered once for all into the holy places. How? Not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but rather by means of his own blood. Amen. That is, Jesus shed his own blood to enter in before God, thus securing an eternal redemption for you specifically. For if the blood of goats and of bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify or make holy or make pure again for the, for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God? If bulls and goats counted as sanctifying the people, if their blood counted as that, how much more than God's very blood? The blood of God himself was shed so that you could be washed with it. And this is... <laughs> some of you imagine that your sins are not really taken from you. Some of you who have truly repented and have faith in Christ, imagine that your sins have not actually been taken from you, that you've not actually been washed. And you struggle with this assurance all the time. But if the blood of Jesus was shed on your account to wash you, then you cannot have any greater cleansing. And you have the hope of going into the Holy of Holies before God someday and being in the presence of God. Because the perfect sacrifice was shed for you. Again, God's very blood shed for you that seals you completely. Amen. So this is the Sea of Bronze. It's the basin and the bulls. The Sea of Bronze. Washing in Jesus the better, the best sacrifice. And the only sacrifice. And I was thinking about this concept of the sea, and I think this would represent something for the Israelites. If you've ever 
stood on the, on the seashore, on the beach, or maybe even like Lake Michigan or something. Somewhere where it's endless water, right? You look out, you can look on both corners, and it just looks endless on the horizon. The water goes on forever. It just carries on, boundless. God's grace for you who are in Christ is the same. It'd be better for you to try to drink up the Atlantic Ocean than to run out of God's grace for you because you've been washed. That's the Sea of Bronze. And so we've seen the strength and we've seen the power of God in the pillars and we've seen the way to be cleansed in the sea. But now there's one final thing to look at. The tools in the temple. You notice how I said to take note of the bread table? The, the table of the uh, bread of the presence. That's what it's called. And also the incense dishes. Both of them are so important. And if you haven't guessed it yet, they do point to Christ. So the bread table. What about that? That was the table that the bread of the presence was kept on. Just specifically, like sanctified bread was kept there. Um, and Jesus himself refers to this bread. A lot of these things we have to draw from the Old Testament and go, oh, Jesus fulfilled this specifically. Jesus says, I fulfilled this one. In John 6, 33-35, for the bread of God, he says this, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And all the disciples around him, classic, not getting it, said, say, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger again. If you tasted the bread of life, you will never hunger again. And we, we actually miss this so often because bread is not as big a part of our culture as it was in those days in the ancient world. Bread meant life. Bread meant nourishment and it meant life in the ancient world. That was their diet, pretty much. They pretty much ate bread and drank wine. Not too much. <laughs> but, but bread meant life. And so, when we miss the importance of it so often, it's Jesus fulfills. Jesus gives life. That's what he's saying. He's saying, I not, and also I not only give you life, but I nourish you. And so, okay, what's the application for Redeemer students in the 21st century? Jesus satisfies the bread of life. The reason that you looked at porn again this week is because you're not satisfied in the beauty of Jesus Christ. Take of the bread of life. Be satisfied. Stop rolling around in the mud with the pagan makeup. Be satisfied in Christ. You're starving. Eat of the bread of life. Or how about uh, you look for affirmation in other people? That almost anyone can't get out of that one in this room. You're looking for affirmation in other people. You're looking to be affirmed by them and accepted by them. Why? Because you're not satisfied with yourself. We shouldn't be trying to be satisfied with yourself in the first place. Rather, be satisfied with the bread of life. Take and eat of the bread of life and be satisfied. Finally, every other bread is moldy. Take the bread of life. Be filled. He's the bread of life. Jesus Christ is the bread of life. It sits on the bread of the, the, the table of the bread of presence. He fills, he nourishes, he gives life, and you, I promise you, students, I promise you, you will not go away hungry from Jesus. And now the incense, finally. 
incense. It only mentions the dishes of the incense. In another place it mentions, um, when they're building the tabernacle, about how they made the incense. It's earlier on in Exodus. But it's this idea of a fragrance, an aroma, a sweet or a good smell. Maybe your favorite cologne. Think of, think of good smells. Uh, like going to Yankee Candle and just popping the lids off the candles and you know how you have to smell every one of the workers like, what are you doing? Or are you driving past Chick-fil-A not on a Sunday and you smell fresh frying those waffle fries? Aroma. Fragrance. So, the incense tools are made for the use of the temple. And in ancient times, the sacrifices would be conducted and they would burn meat or they would uh, burn incense. And the, the idea was it would raise up to God as, a, as an offering to him. And the thought would be like God enjoy, you know, enjoys the smell of it, sort of. Like we would enjoy the smell. And so God is, they would want God to be pleased with it. Either cooking meat or incense. But if you think about it, the only thing that God's pleased with is his own standard of holiness and righteousness. And so the only thing that can actually please God is God himself. So it takes God coming down to die in order to please God. It takes the sacrifice of God himself to please God. You get the picture. And so it's the Son of God who is God that is the best in living sacrifice. Who's the true and living sacrifice. Who's the fragrant aroma to God. Who's the pleasing incense to God. Paul talks about this in two different places Specifically, that just pop out. Romans 12, 1, he says, I appeal to you, the church. Therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, by God's mercy, which he's shown to you in Christ, to present your body as a living sacrifice, both holy and acceptable to God. A living sacrifice. That, God, that, that the, the aroma of your life would rise up to God and that he would be pleased with it. Through the mercies of God, which is Christ. And again, in 2 Corinthians 2, 15, he says... For we are the aroma of Christ to God. We are the aroma of Christ to God. And so with Christ in us, we then become living incense. We become a living fragrance. Pleasing to God. And so, do you smell like Jesus? You know, you know the parent that you hug and they have a specific smell or maybe a grandparent or something? They have a smell and you know them by it. Do you smell like Jesus in your life, in, in your work ethic in school, in the way you treat your parents, in the way your conversations with your friends? Do you smell like Jesus? Is your, the things you're doing, are they a pleasing fragrance and aroma to God? This should, the idea of fragrance and aroma should stir us out of spiritual stupor. You were made and intended with the purpose to smell like Jesus. And if you don't, that should awaken you out of spiritual stupor. Out of the goodness and the grace which he's shown you, which is really the best part of this. Is that the aroma, if you notice, that Paul talks about? He says, you're a living sacrifice by the mercies of God. And again, he says, a pleasing aroma of Christ to God. So you're not even really the pleasing aroma. It's Christ in you. Like those candle filters you plug into the wall and you've got to put the good smelling stuff in it first before it does anything, right? It's Christ in you which rises as a pleasing aroma to God if you are a believer. 
So that's the key to the fragrance. Jesus gets to smell good. He gets to be a pleasing to God the Father. <laughs> if he's yours, brothers and sisters, if Jesus Christ is yours, he's not only a pleasing fragrance to God, but he ought to be the most pleasing fragrance to you. When you read of him in the pages of Scripture, when you see Christ in a brother or sister, that's a pleasing fragrance. Jesus, in his beauty and his glory, to go back to that concept, is all that should fill you up. Anything else will not work. His love for you will make everything else pale out in comparison. Every other love pale out in comparison. Who else was crucified for you? Who else descended out of heaven, lived a perfect life, and was crucified for you, then raised again and went back up into heaven? If you can answer any other name than Jesus, it's quite interesting. Even the most intimate human relationship of marriage is just a shadow of the love between Christ and the believer. It's just a shadow. Again, we're talking about incense, enjoying the fragrance of him. The world sets up so many illusions of beauty for you. So many of them. Of beauty and glory calling you in. The world's good at marketing death. Give them all up for the beauty and the glory of God. All of which we've seen in the temple. Which is Christ. If you notice, the beauty and the glory of God. The pillars, Christ. Sea of bronze, Christ. The bread, Christ. And the incense, Christ. The beauty and the glory of God is Christ. And Hebrew says this, he's the radiance of the glory of God. The exact imprint of his nature. So I, I long for all of you. If you have not received Christ, then come into the temple today before the presence of God through Christ, being washed by Christ, entering through the pillars, receiving the benefits of Christ. And those of you who have already tasted the sweetness of Christ, again, come into the temple. Enter into the presence of God and rest in the arms of Jesus. He's the strong pillar. He's the cleansing seed. He's the bread of life. And he's the sweet aroma of our lives. There's a poem that talks about this by a Puritan. I'll just read it for you real fast. It says, think about these four categories as we go through. When life has beat me like the shoals of waves that break and spray and roll, to the pillar I will fly and in it there I will hide. When I'm reminded of my filth, my sin and weight of guilt, I will bathe in clean, pure water and gaze on he who was slaughtered. When I seek some other food to fill my need and lift my mood, I will taste the bread of life and forget all other strife. And when I see no good at all, when my life is dim and small, I will breathe the fragrance deep of he who for me prays and weeps. Jesus is the only beauty and glory. Come to him and take your rest. Dear Father, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and Father, many of us in here, thank you for your beauty and your glory, which draws us in. Even when we